Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. New Orleanians have always loved to cook and to share what they've made with others. So it makes sense that as soon as there was television, there was a Crescent City chef on the screen spreading the good news of New Orleans food. That first TV chef was an African-American woman named Lena Richard, who made her TV debut on WDSU-TV in 1949. Today, it's tough to tune in to any cooking show and not see a familiar face. This week, three local chefs walk us through the fun and frenzy of their television culinary encounters. First, Mason Hereford from Turkey and the Wolf talks about his experience in the lauded Iron Chef competition, as well as his appearance on Late Night with Seth Meyers. Next, Chef Toya Bodie explains the strategy she used when making her rounds on cooking competition shows. And Chef Kevin Belton tells of his journey from college football player to PBS cooking show host. Don't touch that dial. The food TV personalities are popping up on this week's Louisiana Eats. When Mason Hereford found his way to New Orleans, his first job was bouncer at Fat Harry's Bar on St. Charles Avenue. But before long, he found himself in the kitchen of fine dining eatery Coquette. Despite all that exposure to fine dining ingredients, deep down, Mason continued to foster his love for gas station ingredients because he likes the food that reminds him of being a kid. He got his wish in 2017 with the opening of his sandwich shop, Turkey and the Wolf. Mason's off-the-wall approach and uncanny ability to elevate the common to the sublime garnered national attention. His cookbook, Turkey and the Wolf, Flavor Trippin' in New Orleans became a New York Times bestseller. His television appearances have included Guy Fieri's Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives, the Netflix reboot of Iron Chef, and a cooking segment on Late Night with Seth Meyers. So I brought you some white bread okay. from New Orleans, baked by my friend David Weiss. You're going to cut it Thank and you, butter David. it if you do not mind. You've gotten three, I only needed two, so that's great. Well, You're good. good. Uh -huh. um, I thought we might both have a sandwich. <laughs> As if that were not enough, he subsequently opened a playful breakfast spot, Molly's Rise and Shine, 
And most recently, his culinary journey has come full circle as he returned to fine dining with the premiere of his third restaurant. But Mason brought his sense of humor along for the ride. His new place is an 80s-inspired small plate offering named Hungry Eyes, after a song in the 1987 cult classic, Dirty Dancing. He seems determined to do it all because apparently nobody puts Mason in a corner. Now, now I'm in the studio with Mason Herford, the TV star. Oh, come on. Give me a break. Oh, come on now. I'm not giving you a break because it's true. I'm a TV-aholic, and you've been burning up the airwaves, boo. How has your TV profile and career changed from your early days on TV which was Travel Channel Food Paradise and Diner Drives In and Dives. So that was back in like 2018. And then you wrote the book. Is that when you caught fire? What's oh, the difference? I don't know if I would say I caught fire. Your word's not mine, but I do appreciate it. You're the nicest. Um, I don't know if there's anything different. We went on Iron Chef, and that was pretty wild. Um, and it was sort of a perfect storm that we started writing a book, then there was quarantine, and so it just took longer for the book to come out. And then um, separately, we were invited to go on Iron Chef, and it just so happened that the two things came out within, you know, 10 days of each other. So it was a, sort of a wild period for us, and we had a lot of fun. Let's talk about that Iron Chef thing because... That was a wild experience. It was a wild experience, and I don't think they ever saw anything like you on Iron Chef. They didn't know what to do with you. On the Iron Chef side, there's definitely a seriousness and urgency. Go, go, go. Over on Chef Hereford's side, they seem a bit more chill. Well, it's because they've been drinking. Good point. First of all, what's up with Alton Brown dissing... You're drinking? Oh, did he? Uh, oh, come I must have on not now. caught that. There was some some footage not included where we, we all sort of made uh, jokes about the drinking and Alton was laughing it up just with us. So I didn't read that as uh, judgmental because he was being pretty cool about it in general. But what I will say is, I don't know, uh, no one ever told me what I'm allowed to say about Iron Chef or not, but we drank a lot more than they showed, that's for sure. Well, you know, you have a sense of humor that just won't quit. And so they have pitted you. This is this new quest for an iron legend. And Mason, you don't have to be an iron legend because you're a sandwich legend. And oh, I appreciate that. That's pretty good all on its own. But anyway, so there you are with Curtis Stone. and Such a nice person. But somebody, and very attractive. Oh, I, but somebody's got to, like, loosen up here just a little bit. You know, it was street food, and you just ran with it. W- what can I say about you served one of your dishes involved a toy dinosaur and another one involved happen. children's lunchbox? Like, did you bring your props? How did you prepare? We, we brought a few props. Um, there was a period of time before the show where you were allowed to go through their plate catalog, and if you didn't see what you needed, 
you had the opportunity to sort of fill in the blanks if you, you know, stuck to their guidelines. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in doing so, I was able to secure some uh, unorthodox plateware. How long did the whole process take? So it's a long day of filming, but it is the, the it is one hour. Like you know, it's a real thing. They start the clock, and you got to get it done in an hour. And I will say it was extremely difficult to get it all done in an hour. Did you think you were going to win? So we wanted to make sure that we planned ahead of time that, regardless if we won or lost, so we didn't plan on doing either. That we left having found the most fun we possibly could could have found in that scenario because it's a bit of a nerve wracking situation, and we didn't want to just sit there and stress, try to cook some food we don't normally cook in an environment we don't normally cook in, and then maybe lose and not have fun. So we just went in like, if we win or lose, this is going to be a party. We're on freaking Iron Chef. <laughs> We're not drinking yet, fellas. You know, the Iron Chef thing, it was great. It was such a big deal to see you on that. But you and Seth Myers, I think that that is a marriage made in heaven. Number one, the first thing I saw you do, I would drink him right there. <laughs> beer in a shot. And then we chugged the beer. Uh, I, I mean, it's not something I don't I think you'd assume for someone who has gone on shows before, but I have – a bit of a fear of public speaking. I do not like it. I try to avoid it as far as that. And that was not only live television, but a giant live audience. And I was just like, oh gosh, here it goes. Uh, beer and a shot got me through it. And <laughs> it was a lot of fun. Uh, that dude's funny. And, you know, we exchanged a few friendly jabs, which was really fun. And yeah, that was a, a pretty special experience for me. Fear of public speaking aside, Mason's a natural in front of the camera, which is probably why he's gotten so many offers to appear in videos and on television. Recently, another Mason media adventure took place, and this time, I got to go along for the ride. A British publication called Sandwich was dedicating an entire issue to joy. And what says joy more than ice cream sandwiches. They got California-based Oatly to join in with the making of a video featuring their new non-dairy frozen treat. Mason and I were tasked with turning Oatly into ice cream sandwiches of our own invent. All created on board a dysfunctional ice cream truck on the streets of New Orleans. Let's talk a little bit. Well, first, one of the things I wanted to find out from you is how you choose video and television projects that you're willing to work on. What's your criteria? Um, that's a good question. I'll say I say no to almost every podcast. Uh, I only do this apparently because um, well, we're is friends. A br- and this uh, is a yeah, broadcast. Broadcast. Right? I'm well. I I shouldn't say podcast. I'd say. <laughs> a voice-only recording because for some reason, I don't know, the video feels more natural. But regardless, it's not like I'm, like, wading through offers. Uh, You know, people aren't beating down my door to get me on camera. I'm kind of weird looking. But uh, I'd say I will most likely say yes after a little research if the uh, production company or whoever is in charge, if our values align. That's a good – a good start. 
if somebody is particularly rich and wants to pay me, that's a really good one. Um, and if there's a possibility of fun, I'll probably do it for free. Um, it's all about fun for me. Well, there was a great deal of fun. The moment when you pulled up on an ice cream truck on a trailer at Tujac's Restaurant on Decatur Street. Have you had to do much crazier things on screen? Uh, people ask me to rollerblade a lot, but I don't know. It's, uh, maybe that's crazy to some people. But, yeah, I think before that, the uh, ice cream van had broken down like four or five times. Uh, we had done a few blocks around the neighborhood in the Bywater and waved at people and honked the horn and played all the ice cream music. Um, but yours was more or less after that, the first stop. So it all sort of unfolded from there. But no, I don't, I don't drive around ice cream trucks often. Well, of course, we would be remiss if we didn't mention the send-off from the drag queens. I mean, oh, yeah. that was just so... And I made like five new friends that day. I follow them all on Instagram. It's awesome. Well, the whole thing was just so much fun. Everybody seemed to be happy with it. I was. I was, too. Loved the drag queens eating the ice cream sandwiches. That was way more fun. And I got to do a little bit of drag queening myself. And I can't wait to watch it when it when it's cut and ready. Me neither. Well, we'll keep all of our listeners and viewers informed. And Mason, thanks so much. I'm oh, always yeah. thrilled to talk Anything Mason Herford in the Louisiana East. Well, I appreciate it. Until the next party. We can dance if we want to. We can leave your friends behind. Because your friends don't dance. And if they don't dance, well, they're no friends of mine. That was Chef Mason Herford of Turkey and the Wolf, Molly's Rise and Shine, and Hungry Eyes. Who was the first Food Network star? And how did the madness of reality food TV begin? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Crystal Hot Sauce, now celebrating 100 years of hot sauce deliciousness. Always made with just three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways, Rouse's Markets tastes like home. And from Camellia Brand, beans done right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. Now celebrating their centennial by donating one million bowls of beans to Second Harvest Food Bank. What a way to say thank you to the community they call home. 
To learn more and view the new video by award-winning documentary filmmaker Joe York, visit CamelliaBrand.com. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. Who was the first Food Network star, and how did the madness of reality food TV begin? David Rosengarten was tapped by friends at the Food Network in 1993 to appear in their very first show, Food News and Views, which he hosted along with Donna Hanover, back when she was Rudy Giuliani's wife and the first lady of New York City, and Robin Leach of the Rich and Famous franchise. Soon after, David developed his own show for the network, which he called Taste. Entertainment Weekly called the new show Culinary Voyeurism, in essence, the same thing that a never-satiated audience is experiencing today on shows like Gordon Ramsay's To Hell and Back. The next TV game-changer came with a little Japanese import you may remember, Iron Chef. The original version was produced and aired in Japan in 1993, but morphed into Iron Chef America by January 2005. It's important to note that the great-grandfather of all reality TV, Survivor, began its great run in 1997, wetting America's appetite for human struggle on the boob tube. Undoubtedly, it's a combination of all these things that bring us to the point we're at with reality food TV today which perhaps is why seeing Mason Hereford and his team on a competitive cooking show is such a breath of fresh air. Their performance on Netflix Iron Chef, Quest for an Iron Legend, demonstrates that you can be there to win it while also having fun and enjoying the ride. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. Like many native New Orleanians, Toya Bodie began cooking in her mother's kitchen as a small child. But her destiny was set when she began selling her culinary creations at age 15. Specializing in traditional Creole fare, often with her own twist, Toya eventually started a successful catering company, created her own YouTube channel, and set her sights on the myriad cooking show competitions that could potentially propel a chef to new heights. She appeared on Guy's Grocery Games, TLC, and the Food Network. She was crowned Best Home Cook by Hallmark's Home and Family Channel and was named an ambassador for the New Orleans Multicultural Tourism Network. 
She's also published her first cookbook, Cooking for the Culture, recipes and stories from the streets of New Orleans to the table. Toya, I love that mission statement that Mm -hmm. you make right off the bat in the book. Mm -hmm. You say that your ultimate mission is to light enough fires around the world. Yeah. So the darkness won't be so scary. Mm-mm. Let's start right there. Tell me about how that became your mission and how that's worked for you. I I figured out pretty quickly that um, I was here for a reason. And I realized that it was such a rare thing to have a hold on, like your why and why you're here on this earth. And I realized that, you know what? It's for me to help other people understand why they're here, to help other people get close to their thing. Like I always wanted anything that I produce in any way, whether it been poetry or abstract art or even cooking or writing, that it would just be something that would almost work like a defibrillator with people and just make people wake up and think, what about me? I want to know who you and your people are in this world and how, and and what you have come out of to present yourself because you're presenting us and our culture to the world right now mm-hmm. and that is a very serious job yeah. for any of us who love New Orleans like mm-hmm. I know you and I both do mm-hmm. my people are the ones who are normally cast to the side, like the misfits. You know, I was textbook. I I even said it in a book that I got put out of preschool. It didn't stop there. I kept getting in trouble and suspended, expelled, and teenage pregnancies. I'm, you know, I realized that the people that I gelled with well, and we kind of like give like a little head nod to each other on a path, and we're like, man, they really thought we wasn't going to turn out right. You know, it's it's those people that knew how to bounce back. That's the people that I represent, the comeback kids. At what point did that food thing come to you? Oh, my God. I when I was writing it, I think that's when it sat. It was almost like therapy. And I sat and at some point I cried about it because I was just thinking, Oh, my God. I had to go to summer school. I said, I don't want to be left back again. I want to go to high school. Because if I wouldn't have went to summer school that time, I would have been in junior high school all over again in the ninth grade. So I said, all right, um, how am I going to get them to believe that I know how to cook? I decided, I said, okay, I'm a, I had this thing where I used to like to basically copy whatever I saw on a frozen meal. And I would taste it and cook it by taste and cook it until it came out looking like the image that I saw. And I got those plates and I wrapped them up and I walked them down the street. I bought one to one store. He kind of looked at me. I had a feeling he was going to kind of say no, but I, I still felt good about it. Then I went to the next store, which was actually the beginning of the store franchise Brothers. Oh. How crazy. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> what a coincidence. I think I, I think it truly didn't dawn on me what I was doing at that age because I kind of survived it until I had to write it. And I was like, girl, I cannot believe you were catering 
at 15 and they let you do it. Like, <laughs> who let you behind that big? Like, you know, I mean, it's wild. It is it wild crazy. that they let you do that. And I was you, good at it, too. And you were making money mm-hmm. and you were 15 and you get pregnant. Yeah, man. In fact, it turned out it was a gift. Oh, was it a gift? After all, her name is Heaven. How can when is Heaven not a gift? (laughs) It was such. It was exactly. She lived up to her name exactly just by existing in this world. Like, you know, I say this often that I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for her because I definitely was. I was on the exact track to hurting myself because I was just, I just didn't see the purpose, you know, like I just couldn't get anything right. Like, that's why I tried to paint the picture in the story. Like, could you imagine this, 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 and this? Right. It's the perfect storm for self-hatred, self-mutilation, destruction. Tell us about the luxury of commodity food. For people who don't understand what a commodity box is, would you just demystify that a little bit? Yeah, the government is is basically like almost like another version of assistance, kind of like food stamps. And you get cheese, you get beans, you get dry milk, you get canned goods, peanut butter, that kind of stuff, rice. It was joy for me because I got to do anything I wanted with that stuff. It was like a creative Christmas. Toya's life has expanded exponentially since those commodity boxes. For the last decade, she's been joined on her journey by her husband, Chris, and together they set out to tackle the world. The world of cooking competition shows, that is. She came out swinging and didn't let an initial failure stop her. In fact, not getting to cook with Gordon Ramsay propelled her to set a much bigger goal. So was it after the Hell's Kitchen disappointment that you thought, because that was really the first TV thing that you went out for all full-fledged, huh? In, in culinary, yeah. Yeah. You know, before I had done tons of auditions and done stuff with, like, with acting and even being in stage plays. So I knew that I could land stuff, you know, but with that, I thought I had it. So was that when you and Chris decided, well, heck with Gordon Ramsay. We're mm-hmm. just going to have our own channel. Is that how it happened? That's that's kind of how it happened. After I was depressed <laughs> for a while, I walked out the room and I told Chris, I said, I'm going to start my own show. I'm not waiting for anybody to give me anything. And then he said, okay. And that's kind of how our relationship is. I said, Let's, I'm about to climb this mountain. Okay. <laughs> and then he finds out the layout and then we map it out and we do it. What happens next? I just started randomly getting calls or emails from different casting producers and stuff like that that want me to come compete in a show. And, you know, I looked at a few of them. And before, I didn't just jump into the television world like that. I studied. You know, I studied shows. I studied the track record of the people who won the show. That's why when I went on Food Network Star, I went on Food Network Star thinking that I do not want to win because the track record of the winner is not good. I was gunning for as seen on. Tell me about (laughs) the good TV experiences that you have had and the places and things that these have done for you. That was Guy's Grocery Games. Guy Fieri. Ooh, honey. 
When I tell you that was a smooth ride, not only was it a smooth ride, he was kind, the staff, you can see the staff relationships. And I'm a big person that that thinks of the culture of an environment, like how is everyone working from top to bottom? You know, like how how are things ran? And I paid attention to a lot of stuff, remembered a lot of names, that kind of thing. You know, it's, man, that place will always have a special place in my heart. Well, I'll tell you, you are flipping the narrative on the cover of this book with your beautiful, strong (laughs) arm, your beautiful blue ink, and your beautiful piece of jewelry and that piece of watermelon you just take a bite out of that you can see. What's the message? I'm taking it back. There's, There's no other way you can give it. It doesn't matter if you can bring up all the cartoon characters. You can say all of the the slangs that have been said in the past about watermelon with black people and stuff. All the what, pejorative, horrible whatever, stuff. Whatever. It doesn't matter. I'm taking it back. There's other sides to that mountain, you know? A mountain just doesn't have one way to get up to the peak. A watermelon, that's majestic. It comes from Africa, grows up into 85% sand. They... They studied the land. They studied the people before they took the people from Africa. And one of the things they wanted to take was watermelon because it could hydrate you and feed you at the same time. The benefits, you know. See, the narrative is switched. Because when most people naturally think of Africa, you think about, oh, that's where we were taken from. Oh, that's that's where this happened. That's where that happened. But now I'm telling you, look what came from it. Look what good stuff came. So now you're switching a narrative. And you you sum it all together in the perfect dish of fried chicken and watermelon jam sandwich. Yes, indeed. Brilliant. Thank you. Just brilliant. But, you know, there's so much more. It's very rare that somebody tells the story about or much less gives a recipe for eggs and rice. Eggs Come and on rice now. are so Come important. On and if the, you're not from New Orleans, you don't seem to Mm-mm. know it. Nope, nope. And it makes people instantly feel like, oh, I wanted New Orleanians to see something real. It's not that we don't want change. It's just that those things are almost like heirlooms passed down. There are families. Talismans. It's bigger than a recipe. Yeah. It is. It's a culture. Mm-hmm. And that's just what you're cooking in your book. Mm-hmm. So, and you tell the stories and demystify things that lots of folks right. might not have a grasp or knowledge of. Right. Fish plates, card games, and rent parties. Get your money up. Get your money up. Nobody's <laughs> ever put that in a book before. I know. Get you know. your money up. <laughs> Just to tell somebody that. Well, everybody better get their money up and mm-hmm. rush right out for a copy <laughs> of Cooking for the Culture because this is an investment in New Orleans culture that is desperately needed in the world today. So thanks for doing what Thank you're you doing so, much so for beautifully. Saying that. I appreciate that. I, I really take that to heart because I put a lot of myself a big chunk of myself in that book. That was Chef Toya Bodie. She can be seen making her delicious recipes on her YouTube channel, and her book is Cooking for the Culture. 
recipes, and stories from the streets of New Orleans to the table. Coming up next, Chef Kevin Belton tells the story of how he became the face of New Orleans cooking on PBS. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry. Now doing for chicken what they've always done for fish. Fried chicken tenders, wings, sandwiches, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry has you covered with a mix specially for chicken. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission. Plan to stay, play, and get away on the Louisiana North Shore this summer. Discover the bounty of the bayou and rich culture from award-winning chefs, soulful mom-and-pop restaurants, extraordinary bakers, and creative mixologists. To learn more, request the Explore the North Shore Visitor Guide for inspirational stories, custom itineraries, and event information at louisiananorthshore.com. St. Tammany Parish, 40 minutes from New Orleans French Quarter and a world away. Whether you live in Milwaukee, Miami, or Maine. If you're a fan of PBS cooking shows, you probably know the name Kevin Belton. For decades, the New Orleans chef, educator, and author has taught the foundations of Louisiana cooking to TV audiences from coast to coast. A natural-born entertainer with a big personality to match his six-foot-nine-inch frame, Kevin has had a long association with New Orleans PBS affiliate, WYES, as well as local CBS affiliate, WWL-TV. His cooking series and segments focus on culture and cuisine here in the Big Easy and across our state. Kevin joined us in the studio to discuss his life and career both in and out of the spotlight. I really want to hear about how Kevin Belton became the Kevin Belton we know today. You know, I came from a family of teachers. I don't know if a lot of folks realize that. My mom was a teacher. Her sister was a principal. My dad's sister was a teacher. His brother was a principal. His wife was a teacher. I grew up around adults. So I grew up watching these people interact with each other, listening to stories, how they interacted with people at work and in the classroom and things like that. So all of that kind of shaped me and molded me how, okay, this is how I'm supposed to be. So obviously, you were very food aware growing up. Yes. We sat at the table together 
every day for dinner. When everyone got home, everyone congregated in the kitchen. So I sat at the kitchen table to do my homework, but I also got to watch mom start dinner. And my grandmother would actually get it started and mom would come in and go ahead and finish it. So grandma did like the pre-prep work. And then it, it was just a work of art to watch everything being done. Did your grandmother live with you all? Yes. Ah, and which grandmother was this? This was my mom's mom, Magnolia Battle. We called her Nan. So the two of them were always in the kitchen. Always. After graduating from Brother Martin High School in 1977, Kevin moved to Baton Rouge to play football for Louisiana State University. But his path forward was far from clear. What did you grow up thinking you were going to do in life? I had no clue. I still have no clue what I want to do. Well, we all I know what you're up. doing if you need to know. You know it's so interesting because it's something that I really didn't set out to do. And, and you know, I guess like all kids, you, you think you might be an athlete. And when I got to play at LSU, mom died. When I was there, and it was just too much between school, home, football. So something had to give. So I, I stopped playing, and eventually I came back home and took classes at Xavier and Loyola. And, you know, at LSU I was taking marketing classes, and I decided to continue in marketing and business classes, but I never finished, never graduated. I started working. And, and what's interesting is I started working in tourism. I was working with a tour company that operated different desks and hotels and things like that. Mm -hmm. And I got to learn the business from the inside because my responsibility was making sure everybody at the tour desk that they were manned and had everything that they needed. So, you know, mom always taught me, I guess because we live here on the river, you know, jump on a barge, take it down the river. If you don't like it, jump on the next one. See where that one takes you. If you don't like that, take one going the other way. So I never really thought that, ooh, this is what I want to do the rest of my life. A part-time job with the tourism company led in many ways to Kevin's role today as New Orleans culinary ambassador. In 1990, he crossed paths with the New Orleans School of Cooking founder, Joe Kahn. In addition to the school, Kahn owned a general store that sold Louisiana products in the Jack's Brewery. He saw a spark in young Kevin. And all of a sudden, one day, he says, he, I saw him and he says, come visit with me. Come see me next week and let's sit down and talk. And that's how I started. In 1990. 1990. I, and I went and managed the store. At the time... It was truly a Louisiana general store. I had known about a lot of the state and had visited probably every corner of the state. But now I got to visit it through food because Joe would go down to Gaydon and pick up the rice from Mr. Stanzo. And, and we'd go and visit with Mr. Artigo out of Veal Platte. He, when he came home from the war, decided to start making hot sauce. And he didn't sell it. He kept it in his trunk and would give it away. But he asked Joe, hey, would you sell it for me in the store? And let's see what happens. And, and so I got to meet all of these vendors. And I'd learn 
Louisiana food in a bigger scale. And when do you become the cooking teacher that certainly everybody remembers from the New Orleans School of Cooking? You know, that was your thing for quite some time. About six months. And how did that come about? Well, you know, I had always cooked. I had watched the class. I knew what was going on in the classes because I was ordering the food for the classes and things like that. So uh, one day, Joe said, hey, come on, let's do class together. Following in his mother's footsteps, Kevin became a natural teacher at the school. Two years later, another door opened when Kevin followed his mentor, Joe Kahn, to WYES for the live broadcast of the station's fundraiser, Showboat Auction. When Wine Night opens the 1992 Showboat Auction on WYES, make your plans now to tune in on April 30th and support public television. He says, hey, I have to go read a board at the showboat auction. Come with me so you can see it. And somebody didn't show up that next weekend. And they said, hey, could you read a board for us? And they asked me back to do some pledge breaks. And you know, when you're live, you can't practice that. You can set up a camera all you want and turn it on, but you cannot practice live. So by doing the pledge breaks, that taught me how to do live television. In 2013, Kevin got his first major break in television. That year, WWL-TV icon Frank Davis passed away. The station's resident chef had appeared on Channel 4 in New Orleans for 30 years, and WWL wanted to do a tribute to him. So Todd Smith, the general manager over at WWL, called me up and he says, Kev, we want to dedicate the kitchen to Frank. Would you come and do this? Would you come and do one of his recipes every Tuesday of the month? And the last Tuesday of the month, we'll bring in Mary Claire and we'll bring in uh, uh, Nora back that used to help him sometimes Mm -hmm. and Mike that used to help him and we'll dedicate the kitchen to him. So we did that and we're all in the kitchen. So I did Frank's recipes for three weeks the last week. We're all in the kitchen together, and we're all bawling. We're just all crying. And after it was over, Todd came to me and says, I need you to call me this week. Come come over and see me maybe Thursday. And I went back and sat down with him. He says, I want to bring the cooking segment back on a regular basis, and I want you to do it. You know, you grow up as a kid watching the the – the stations, you grew up watching WWL, you grew up watching WDSU, you grew up watching all these stations and watching these people. And, you know, and, and, and hanging out in the kitchen with Margaret Orr at Channel 6 and, and Alec Gifford when Alec used to have his show on Saturdays and all. And then to be asked to step into those shoes and, and do it, it was it, it kind of like when I started working with Joe. And started doing classes. Joe says, just be yourself. Don't try to be me. Just be yourself. I can't be Frank. I I just be me. Kevin's years of commercial TV cooking success are unparalleled in the Crescent City. Public television opened its doors to him in 2015 after Chef Paul Prudhomme retired from his long-running PBS series. WYES programming director Beth Utterbach asked Kevin to come see her. And Beth says, Kev, 
Chef doesn't want to do any more shows. Chef is done. And we want you to take it up and do the next show. And I remember leaving Beth's house and calling Chef on the phone. So you were friends with Paul Perdome. Yes. Uh. And it was like asking permission. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Uh-huh. I called him up and says, I was told that you're deciding to step back from doing that kind of stuff. And and they approached me about it. And he says, take it. Do it. Yeah. So that was, yeah, I thought that was neat. Did you call him up for advice then after? Or, or were you able to just take it, do it, and run with it? He, you know, like everybody else, he said, take it, do it, make it your own, and have fun with it. There you go. Yeah. Today, Kevin has completed four 26-episode series accompanied by companion cookbooks. PBS affiliates across the country broadcast his popular show. He credits all he knows today from the priceless knowledge shared so freely with him by New Orleans cooking greats. I have been blessed to as a kid, be taken to Dookie Chase and have known Miss Leah since I was born and eventually were able to be with her in the kitchen. Um, I was able to stand and watch Chef Paul. Um, Mike Roussel, that was executive chef at Brennan's. Louis Evans, who was up at the Pontchartrain Hotel. I, I, and I know I'm leaving people out. I got to hang out and watch these people because I always wanted to help. But at the same time helping, I was also learning. They, they'd be willing, hey, this is why I'm doing this. This, this is why I'm doing that one that way. But what's interesting is Papa, they taught me and showed me the food. But what's more important, they showed me how, they showed me how to treat people, mm-hmm. how to treat the business end of it, and that type of thing. Kevin's thoughts always return to the women in his life. As important as Kevin's mom and Nan were in making him the man he is, he credits his beloved wife, Monica, for making him look good today. The inseparable pair make quite a team, as evidenced in Kevin's latest book, Cookin' Louisiana, co-authored with Monica. You know, I grew up with Mother and grandmother. And they were such an influence. And it only seems right that I married a woman, Monica, who is just so fantastic and unbelievable and makes me look so good. So anything you see me do, understand that it came from her first. That was chef, educator, and author, Kevin Belton. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats. 
edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where over a decade of episodes are available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. If you're looking for a Poppy's pop-up drag brunch, join us on the last Sunday of each month through the summertime, June, July, and August at our home away from home, Tujac's Restaurant in New Orleans, French Quarter. You can make reservations and learn more by visiting tujacsrestaurant.com. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, and the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission. And from D'Agostino Pasta, handcrafted in Louisiana just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. To learn more, visit gulfcoastblenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlow and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producers Blake Longlinay and Steve Himmelfarb, writer Becky Retz, and to our business manager and social media maven Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. <laughs>